Welcome everybody to our worship service here this afternoon. Uh, uh, we also uh, like to welcome any guests or visitors, those that are watching on live stream. We hope that our worship will be upbuilding into the glory of our Lord. Consistory has a couple of announcements. First, there is a uh, meeting this coming Wednesday evening. And also, Consistory announces that four young members have indicated their intention to profess their faith. And after examination, Consistory is delighted to announce that sisters Amanda Blum, Damie Timmerman, Zoe Van Spronson, and brother Silas Eichema will profess their faith. If there's no lawful objections brought forward, their profession will take place on February the 4th in the afternoon or second service. So far, the announcements, we welcome our brother, Pastor Phil Grotes from our sister church at Pathway. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 95. We read, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are his people, the Bible says. We are the sheep of his pasture. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, where does our help come from? And let's say together. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and Grace to you and peace from God the Father and his Son and our Savior, the reigning King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's sing while we remain standing hymn seven, Glory Be to God the Father.
For many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, we come to uh, a relatively very familiar time in our worship service where we hear the Lord speak to us um, his desires for our lives, his will for us um, as we seek to live for his pleasure, but also as we discover more and more the implications of the will of God for our lives um, are also then uh, more and more, we trust, a holy set apart, contrast people, not only for the blessing and the pleasure of God, but as a light to the nations, right? Because if we don't follow the will of the Lord, if we're not walking in the light of Christ, in the light of God's commands, we're really no different than the world. If we're no different than the world, then what kind of positive and beautiful witness do we give as a contrast community? So with that little bit of introduction, I wanna draw your attention now to this countercultural portion of the scripture for a countercultural people where God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment number one, very simple. You shall have no other gods before me. And the Lord goes on to say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then finally, this commandment relating especially to our hearts. You shall not covet. That is, you shall not place your heart's desire. On your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. More positively, the Lord is saying, be content for all the provisions that I give you, whether they be light or whether they be great. You know, Jesus uh, says this in light of the law of God. He says, we are to love We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. And he goes on to say that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. He says on these two fundamental commandments, hang, depend, the whole law and the prophets. And with those words, before we sing, please join me in a brief prayer if you would. Heavenly Father, you're very detailed and you are very clear about your desires for our lives. Most fundamentally, Lord Jesus, you call us to the attribute 
of love. Love for you above all and also love for neighbor. And Father, um, at this point we recognize very clearly that while we may think we're doing okay with some of the Ten Commandments, Father, most fundamentally, oftentimes we fall in connection with the kind of love that we are to have for you and others around us. Father, sometimes we are loveless, sometimes we are cold, sometimes we are duplicitous or our hearts are divided and we have one foot in the church and clearly one foot in the world. Father, we pray if we find ourselves in any way or to any degree with that. Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would not only forgive us our sins for the sake of Jesus Christ, but we pray, O Lord, for a further filling of your spirit, that we may not resist your spirit, we may not grieve him, we may not quench him, but Lord, that we'd open our hearts wide to him and his leading in our lives. So we pray for these things in the name of Jesus, and we pray this all with thanksgiving in our hearts for all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Let's sing together next. Beautiful song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us.
have the opportunity and also the privilege in a free country to be able to hear from the word of the Lord. And we're going to hear from that in just a moment. But before we consider a passage from the Bible, uh, please join me, if you would, in a brief uh, prayer. How deep the Father's love for us. Father, we just sang that. And Lord, we confessed in song the depth of your love for us. Father, we confess uh, a love that you have shown to your people throughout the centuries. And for this we are grateful that you do not leave us to our own devices and you do not leave us to the threats of the evil one and the opposition that comes from this world. But as the Bible says, you have engraved us in the very palms of your hands and Lord Jesus, you tell us that you would not leave us as orphans, that you would be in us and with us forever as you have said to your disciples Lo, I am with you always, always to the end of the age. Father, this is a great comfort to us, and we pray that that very truth would be underscored to us this morning as we consider a portion of Scripture from the Old Testament book of Esther. Bless it to our lives, O Lord. May it give us comfort, and may it incite in us greater love to you and a life of vivid and ongoing obedience and trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to draw your attention, if you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, or if you have a device with you. Um, This morning we are in the Old Testament book of Esther, and sometimes you might wonder, upon occasion you get uh, different pastors on your pulpit, and you might wonder, why is that pastor preaching on such and such passage in the morning and such and such passage in the afternoon? And oftentimes, um, if they're going to be truthful, they're going to say, well, actually, um, those are the kinds of passages that we are going through in the church that I pastor. And that's the case here this morning. So in our morning services at Pathway, we're going through the Old Testament book of Esther. And then we are continuing our catechetical series. And we are at question answer 103 of our catechism regarding this day, the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day. So we'll be looking at it this afternoon, but I'm going to draw your attention to the book of Esther. If you're here this morning and you really don't know much about the book of Esther, you don't know anything at all, the book of Esther revolves around a woman named Esther. So the book is named after her. Esther is, uh, she is queen of a great empire at this time in history known as the Empire of Persia. Now, I don't know if you know who the Persians are today, but uh, Iranians are Persians. So this is happening in what we know is the territory of Iran today, but at this time it was a much larger territory. It was a grand empire stretching all the way from India all the way into Africa, into Ethiopia. So it's a huge country, and at this point, The people of God, the Jewish people, the people who are the apple of God's eye, are in a foreign land. They're not in their homeland, they're in Persia. And when God's people are in Persia, we we find that there is always two things at play that threaten them. One is assimilation, 
where they let go of their religious identity and they start assimilating or become absorbed into the pagan culture of which they are a part. This is always a threat for God's people wherever they were at. But also there's a threat of annihilation. And kids, annihilation means they're always under the threat of death, that the country that they are in just might at one point turn against them and destroy them. And that's what's going on here. There is a wicked man named Haman who has hatched a plot to destroy the Jews, to destroy the people of God. And now the people of God are wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And at this point in the story, all they can do is, well, entrust themselves to this Queen Esther, who hopefully might be able to talk the king out of the decree that through Haman he sent out to destroy the Jews. Now, there's so much more to that, and I'll fill that out more in the sermon itself that gives you a little bit of a background. All right, Esther chapter 4. There are, um, at this point, up to chapter 4, four main characters. You have Ahasuerus, who is the king of Persia, also known as Xerxes. You have Esther the queen. You have Esther's cousin Mordecai, who she's close to, and you have this man Haman, who hatched the plot to exterminate the Jews at a certain point in time. All right. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai, again Esther's cousin, learned all that had been done, that is referring to the decree to exterminate the Jews, Mordecai, and notice his reaction, tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Things don't look good at this point, but remember this. Our God is always faithful to his people, and we're going to sing about that now. Let's sing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
This is what we just sang. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence, O Lord, to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. But sometimes we face things in our lives where there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope for tomorrow or the next week or the next month or even the next year. You know, that's uh, exactly what we find in this story. The story doesn't really end on a very light note. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, pleads to Esther on behalf of him and the people to somehow speak to the king so that the king will deliver the people of God, the Jews, from certain annihilation, extermination, death. And here we have Esther. Esther stands at the very center of this story. Esther has something going for her. Esther is queen, and that's pretty close to the king. But Esther has a number of things going against her, like the fact that she's a woman in a very male-dominated society, the fact that she's part of a minority people, the Jewish people. They're not even in their homeland at this point. The fact of the matter is she's not only a Jew and a minority and a woman, but yes, she belongs to a people that are ready to be exterminated, and if she's not careful, she herself may well be exterminated, and I'll tell you why. Because Esther herself is a Jew. Now, if you know anything about the story of Esther, and I'm going to leave out all these details, but but Esther won a beauty contest in order to be the king's new queen. And the fact of the matter is, is that she was a Jew, and her cousin Mordecai, who helped raise her, said, Shh, Esther, whatever you do, do not reveal to anyone that you are a Jew. And as far as the king knows, she's not a Jew. So she's kept that under wraps. In fact, up to this point in chapter 4, she's kept that under wraps for five to six years. That's a long time to live under a lie, or at least a cover-up, we could say. So we could say that Esther and Mordecai and God's people really, at this point in the story, have their backs up against the wall. And they are facing very much a life-and-death situation. And perhaps some of us, perhaps most of us, and if you have lived any years on this planet, you have at some point faced a situation in your life. It may be a certain obstacle or challenge. Maybe it was one. Or maybe sometimes, you know how the challenges go, they kind of flow like waves on the ocean crashing upon the shore one after another. So you're not facing just one challenge, but maybe two or three or something like that. And how many of us haven't come to the point where, yeah, we sing, great is thy faithfulness, but our faith is challenged. And we throw up our hands, and all we can do at a certain point is say, Lord, help, help. And that's where God's people are at in this story. So let's go on to take a look at the story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the chapter with you. There is a lot here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, just focus on certain aspects of the story, touch on the highlights with the time that we have. All right. So you have Esther's cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai learns that there is this man, Haman, who has issued a decree to exterminate the Jews. Now, you might be wondering, why is that? If you go back some chapters, you will learn that 
um, it, was, it was Haman who is a very, was in a very important position under the king. And the king ordered that wherever Haman went, wherever he walked, then there would have to be, where people were around him, they would have to bow before Haman. And Mordecai, being a Jew, and understanding this much about the first and second commandments, realized that he could not bend the knee to this man named Haman. Plus, Haman was part of a historical people who are historical enemies of God's people. And I won't get into all the details of that. But at any rate, Mordecai refused to bow down. So Haman walks by, and all these people bow down except Haman. He stands as I'm standing now. Haman sees this. He's very angry that Mordecai will not bow down to him because he views that as extreme disrespect. And Haman also discovers that Mordecai is a Jew and that the Jews are the historical enemies of his people, and so he has it in for Mordecai and he has it in for the people of God, for the Jewish people. So he formulates a plan to annihilate, to exterminate the Jews, and he gets the king to sign on to it. All right, that's the background. Mordecai learns about this, and what is his reaction according to the passage? What he does is it's very visceral. Remember, he's, he's, he's Middle Eastern, okay, and they can be very explosive in terms of their emotions. And he, what he does is he, he, he finds out about the plan, and he, he tears his clothes. He puts on what are called sackcloth and ashes as a sign of mourning, a cultural custom at that time, and he fasts. Kids, you know what fasting is? Fasting fasting is where you don't eat anything for a while and you don't drink anything for a while. Sometimes fasting is where you just don't eat but you can drink, but there's different forms of fasts. And the the reason why people would fast in the Bible is, well, for various reasons. Sometimes to say sorry to God for their sins. Sometimes to express mourning in a very difficult situation, seeking to gain the attention of God. But, But here, Mordecai, fast and I I don't know if you've ever faced a situation or you're facing a situation right now in your life that is so dire that you feel compelled to fast have you ever fasted what do we do when we face a difficult situation a very dire situation we do this we pray don't we and well we should but you know in the Bible oftentimes prayer and fasting go together that's what Mordecai does he does what God's people have been doing throughout the centuries. He fasts, and, and the Jews fast because of this threat of annihilation. Meanwhile, what Esther is in a situation where she does not know what Mordecai and the rest of the Jewish people know. She doesn't know that there is a plot to exterminate the Jews, and you, you think to yourself, well, come on, she's a, she's a queen. You know? She's in the inner court. She's pretty tight with the king, right? You would think that she would know about this, but it's very likely that Esther as a queen is probably more of a figurehead, if anything, a beautiful trophy wife of the king. Probably didn't know much about anything what's going on in the kingdom, but she discovers what's going on because some of her attendants tell her. And of course, you can imagine as a Jew under wraps, she learns of this, and she's very, very concerned. And so what does she do? She, she calls upon a man named Hathak in this story, who is a eunuch. He attends the queen. And he says, she says to Hathak, what I want you to do is I want you to go to Mordecai, this man Mordecai, and I want you to, I want you to get some information from him 
about what this plan is all about. Ask him things like, like why, why this plot to exterminate the Jews? And when was it hatched? And who hatched it? And, and when, when is it supposed to materialize? When is this supposed to take place? So he asks these kind of, she says, I want you to go to Mordecai and ask these kind of questions. So Hathak does this. He goes to Mordecai. Mordecai explains to him what is going to happen to the Jews. And Mordecai says to Hathak, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the, to, to have the queen go to the king and plead for the Jewish people to rescind or go back on this decision that you made with Haman to exterminate the Jews. So, so what Mordecai's doing, he's putting all his eggs in the basket of Esther at this point. So what Hathak does is he goes back to Esther and explains what Mordecai has said to him. Esther thinks about this, and then what she does is she sends Hathak back to Mordecai. So what you see in, in chapter four is this kind of back and forth, back and forth between Esther and Mordecai. The intermediary at this point is Hathak the eunuch. So the word of Esther goes back to Mordecai, and this is her response. Now, if you have your Bibles or you have a device, take a look at verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. What is Esther really saying to Mordecai in so many words? She's saying, Mordecai, you want me to go to the king, but you have to understand that I'm not in a great negotiating position here. Because number one, I'm like you, and I'm like the rest of the Jews. I am a Jew myself. And if things start stirring in the kingdom, word might get out somehow that I also am a Jew. And if the Jews are exterminated, which may well happen, I may be exterminated as well. So obviously she doesn't want that. But secondly... Esther says to Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, listen, there is a law on the books, so to speak, that no one can just simply come into the presence of the king unannounced. And if they do that, what can happen is that person can die unless the king holds out the golden scepter. That is the sign that they may come into the presence of the king. But if he doesn't do that, they can die. So that's not a good situation. And thirdly, what Esther is really saying is this, in this passage, she says, Mordecai, you need to understand that I haven't myself been in the presence of the king for 30 days. So that's a way of saying, I I don't know where I'm at really with the king. I haven't been in his presence. Maybe I'm in the outs. Maybe something is wrong and he's not going to be in a good mood. And finally this, what Esther is saying to Mordecai is that the king and Haman together have forwarded this plan to exterminate the Jews. The king and Haman are in a very tight relationship. That doesn't bode well for us. So given all of these things, Esther's saying, again, I am not in a great negotiating position. So she takes that thought and through half brings it back to Mordecai. Mordecai thinks about this and then, yes, once again, it goes back to Esther And this is his response to Esther. And we come to verses 13 and 14, and I want to draw your attention to those verses now. And um, we need to to understand that that 
these, these words of Mordecai to Esther are some of the most important and well-remembered words in all of the book of Esther. This is what he says to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What is Mordecai really saying to Esther? He's saying, Esther, whether you like it or not, you're knee-deep into this with us. Because here's the fact of the matter is, like us, you are a Jew. And if we are exterminated in time, the fact of the matter is, it may well be that you're going to be discovered as well. And if we are exterminated, you may well be exterminated as well. So here's the thing, Esther. If you remain quiet at this time and you don't go to the king, deliverance will come from somewhere else. And you may meet your demise. But Esther, if you go to the king, who knows? You might be a source of deliverance for us. And then these very memorable words. Esther, who knows? If you've been put into a position like this for such a time as this. Esther thinks about this. And she sends back word to Mordecai and she says to him, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you and I want our people together during this very dire time in our history to fast for three days and three nights. No water, no food. Now, a three-day fast is not a week fast or a two-week fast or a month fast. But it's long enough, three days. But notice what she says. No food, no water. Now, bear in mind, this is the Middle East. I served a church in Phoenix, Arizona before I came out here for 12 years. Let me tell you what the desert does to you over time. And if you've ever traveled to Phoenix, you know once you get into that area or you go to Tucson, I know a lot of people from around here like to do that, you're always carrying a water bottle around with you, right? And you're drinking all day because it just that the heat, the dry heat just sucks the moisture out of you. This is in Persia. Very hot there as well. So the, the reason why I bring this out is this just reveals to us from the scriptures that this is so serious that Esther says you need to fast and you need to keep away from food and water and I will do the same thing. And then what's going to happen is I will go to the king. Unannounced. I will take that risk. And she says, if I die, I die. All right. And we step back from this. And what are you thinking about Esther at this time? I think a lot of people are going, what, if I may say this, what a gutsy woman. What a woman of faith. What a woman of courage. What a woman of boldness. And yeah, the, the, the book of Esther is in the Bible to, to, to show just 
What a, what a stellar example that this Esther is, an example for us to follow of a woman of boldness and faith. Shouldn't we all have that? And so we have a very, we have a very high view of Esther. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, there are a series of books known, and you learn this sometimes in catechism classes, and maybe a preacher at some point might mention this, a series of books called the Apocrypha. And these books called Apocrypha were written during the intertestamentary period between Old and New Testament times, about a 400-year period. And one of the apocryphal books, which we do not embrace as Holy Scripture, we do not believe that they are inspired or God-breathed, although the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches do. But Protestant churches don't, and I won't get into the whole history of that and the reasons for that. But one of the books in the Apocrypha revolve around the figure of Esther, and they record, as Esther is, as Esther is facing the situation of fasting and knowing that in time she has to go before the king, she is recorded in this apocryphal book as praying in this way. My Lord and King, you alone are God. Please help me, for I am alone and my life is in danger. We have worshipped the gods of our enemies and you have delivered us into their hands. O oh Lord, do not forget us, but save us by your power, for I am alone and I have no one but you on whom to depend. Amen. So here is Esther, and she, she recognizes that the people of God in Persia have not lived a life the way that they should, but she said, Lord, I, I, I confess this before you, and I'm, I'm crying out to you, showing that I am dependent upon you. Lord, help, help. And we say, there you go. She's the woman of faith and shows her dependence upon God. Godly woman. I want you to think about something that, that maybe, just maybe, Esther and Mordecai were not quite as faithful and godly as we may think. There's another side to the story. Number one, Esther and Mordecai are living in, in Persia. They're not living in their homeland. Now, God's people, you know, history of God's people, they were taken captive into Babylon because of their disobedience to God. And there they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Babylon then was taken over by Medo-Persia. And the people were shifted over to Persia. And now they are living in Persia. Now, there was a, a point in the providence of God, in the designs of God, where God worked through uh, a Persian king before Ahasuerus named Cyrus to allow his people actually in captivity to go back to their homeland as God commanded in order to rebuild their lives, rebuild Jerusalem that was destroyed, rebuild Jerusalem's temple, re, uh, rebuild Jerusalem's walls, and get back to Torah, to the law of God and the service of God. God commanded his people to do that. I don't know if you know this, but nine-tenths of the people said, nah, not interested. You say, why would they want to remain in captivity? Because in Babylon, but especially in Persia, certain freedoms were afforded to them over time, relational, social, religious freedoms. And they said, you know what? We've lived here for many years. We're going to stay here. Mordecai and Esther decided to stay. They were part of that culture. Okay? Number two, bear these things in mind. Esther and Mordecai... Their names reflect an assimilation into culture. Mordecai is a Hebrew version of the pagan god Marduk, and Esther is a Hebrew version of the Persian god Ishtar. Esther, Ishtar. They took on the names of the pagan culture of which they were a part. Thirdly, 
Both Esther and Mordecai had no problem with Esther entering into the contest, a beauty contest to be queen, and they had no problem with Esther actually becoming queen. Esther never said at any point in this book of Esther, she never says at any point or thinks to herself, you know what, I'm a child of God, I have a certain religious identity, I cannot become the queen of a pagan king. Never. And finally this, Mordecai, if you notice in his response to Esther, never, never refers to the name of God. He says to Esther, if you, don't, if you don't speak to the king, he doesn't say this, if you don't speak to the king, God himself will provide deliverance. He just says deliverance will come from some other place, somewhere else. But also this, you know, with Esther, you never give an indication also that she was faith-filled, but notice what she says here. She says, you know what? If I die, I die. She didn't say, you know what? If I die, it doesn't matter. I belong to the Lord. I entrust my life to him. She just says, if I die, I die. She just kind of resigned to it. So here's the thing. As we start drawing to a close, maybe, just maybe, Esther and Mordecai are not as faithful and faith-filled as we'd like to think. Maybe they were actually quite compromised. But if you think about that, are Esther and Mordecai then all that different from you and me? Here they are facing with the Jewish people this huge challenge and there's, there's, the, there's a spirit of resignation. There's a spirit of fear. There's a spirit of anxiety. You don't get a sense among the Jews or Mordecai or Esther that they realize that their times are in the hands of the Lord. Now, many of you may know this, but maybe some of you don't. But in this book of Esther, you will never hear the name of God mentioned. <laughs> you think, why is that even in the Bible? I'll tell you why it's in the Bible. Because while the name of God is not mentioned, look up here. This is seen all over the place. And this is seen in all over the place. They're called the fingerprints of God. The fingerprints of a sovereign God who's orchestrating all things behind the scenes. All things. But you see, Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people, there's no indication that they're entrusting themselves to this God whose fingerprints are over all things. They're not like the psalmist where he says, oh Lord, our times are in your hands. One commentator writes this. He says, Mordecai and Esther's worldviews may have in a general way been based on some solid theology, but they had difficulty connecting that theology to the crisis that they faced. For all our orthodox theology, our own first response in times of crisis is often the whimper of fear and resignation than the spark of a robust faith in God. Isn't that true? Man, you can, you can belong to a church like this, a very orthodox church, and a church that wants to dig deep into the doctrines of God, and you may even have your theology straight. You may have all your doctrines just like ducks in a row, and all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. You may be in possession of all these things, but it doesn't mean that you're faith-filled and you're trusting when the hard times hit. We want to be an orthodox people, but we also want to be a faith-filled and trusting people. So I leave you with this. 
by the time you get to the end of the story, you gotta admit, we're left hanging. We don't know if the Jews are gonna die. We don't know if Mordecai's gonna die. We don't know when the Queen Esther goes before the king, if she's gonna die. They don't know it, we don't know it. But I tell you what, when you take a look at Esther chapter four, in light of the whole of the Bible, you and I are not left hanging, but we're left hopeful. And that hope rests, and this is what I wanna leave you with, that hope rests with an image of a throne. Image of a throne. Here is Queen Esther, And she knows that she has to come before the king and the throne of the king unannounced. And when she does that, she doesn't know if this king who sits on the throne will do this or this. If he does this, she will live. If he does this, she will die. But how different it is for the child of God how different it is for the one who has entrusted their life to Jesus Christ. For it is through Jesus Christ that we can come to the throne of God at any time. And it is in and through Jesus Christ that we know, despite our doubts and our confusions and our anxieties, which you may be experiencing right now to a certain degree, you may know that in Jesus Christ, when you come before the throne of your father, the king, That golden scepter is always, always extended and you're always accepted in his sight. I leave you with this quote from a man named Charles Spurgeon. He wrote this, beautiful quote, listen to this. Our king never withdraws his scepter. It's always stretched out and whoever desires to draw near to him may come now and at any time. Among the Persians, there were a few of the nobility who had the right of an audience with the king at any time that they chose. This special and privileged right is the right of every every child of God. The child of God may come before the king at all times. If you remember anything this morning, remember the throne. And remember the extended golden scepter of the Lord when you draw near in and through Jesus Christ with a heart of repentance and faith and trust. God receives always those who come to his throne. That's, you know what they call, that's called? It's called the gospel. It's called good news. Let's thank God for that good news now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Esther and we thank you for the gospel, the good news of your throne that is opened to all, to us, we who entrust ourselves to Jesus. We thank you, Father, that your golden scepter is extended to us, again, that we may approach your throne of grace in our time of need, as the writer of Hebrews says. That is a beautiful thing, Father. Oh Lord, may we take hold of that advantage and whatever we are facing now in the midst of our sins or midst of the struggles and the difficulties that we face that create so much worry at times and anxiety and sometimes self-loathing. Oh God, give us the confidence to come forward to you and trust that Jesus is not half a savior 
or even three quarters of a savior, but he is a full and sufficient savior for all those who seek to come into your presence. God grant that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing uh, a song in response, and that song is uh, Psalm 68. You know, of, of all the uh, psalms in the, in the Psalter here, it's one of the most powerful, I think. God shall arise and by his might put his enemies to flight, capturing some of what we see here in this passage. So we're going to sing uh, three stanzas to the song, and uh, let's do this. Let's rise and let's sing out.
Please join me in prayer if you would. Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, uh, in light of our passage, a powerful song, an appropriate song, God shall arise and by his might put all his enemies to flight. And Lord, your triumph we sing is glorious, will be glorious. Father, we confess you as sovereign in the heavens. What a comfort. You are powerful, you are majestic, you are omnipotent, all-powerful, you are all-knowing. You're self-contained to such a degree that really, fundamentally, you don't need us. But nonetheless, you love us in Christ and have given us so many gifts and so many blessings that flow to us in and through him. So Father, thank you for this. Father, give us a heart of trust and comfort our hearts, O oh Lord, not only with our passage, but what, what we read elsewhere in the Bible, that your fingerprints are everywhere and that we don't live in a world of fate or chance, but all things that are orchestrated by your divine hand. Lord, we think of uh, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, even a pagan king who recognized, Lord, that your dominion is an everlasting dominion and your kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and you do according to your will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can say to you or ward off your hand and say, what are you doing? What have you done? Lord, who, we are, to, who are we to say this? Oh Lord, you are sovereign. And you're the God of all comfort. We thank you for that. Lord Jesus, you tell us that you will be with us to the end of the age, that you will not leave us as orphans, that you indwell us and lead us by your spirit, that you are the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and one day you will bring judgment to this earth and you will take your people to yourself and one day, being shorn of death and mourning and crying and pain, we will behold you face to face. What a beautiful thing, Lord. Give us in our heart of hearts the desire to keep moving forward to, as the Bible says, run the race that is set before us, always keeping our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So quicken our spirits, quicken our wills to that end, quicken our feet, O oh God, we pray, to live the life of joyous faith and obedience, always looking forward to the reward, all of us, Lord, adults, children, men, women. Oh God, we pray that if we are here also this morning and we know little of Jesus, we know little of the good news of the Bible, Father, we pray that through this morning, through this worship and through the preaching and even through this prayer, that you would reveal to us the light of the kingdom of God, that we may see the light, that it may illumine our hearts, that we may follow the light of Christ and be found in him, shorn of all of our sins, forgiven, cleansed, clothed with his robes of righteousness and the heir to eternal life. God grant that we pray. So Lord, we bring this to you this morning and Father, we also have the opportunity this morning of uh, giving of our offering offering and, and Lord the, the truth of the matter is you are a generous God who has bestowed so much blessing upon us material but also spiritual in Christ oh father as we give for the sake of this church and we give for the sake of the kingdom and parachurch ministries and so forth we pray that oh Lord 
you, you, you would help us not to be a stingy people, but a people who overflow with monetary gifts, but also the use of our spiritual gifts for the blessing of each other and for the blessing of the kingdom and as a, a blessing in terms of an evangelistic witness to the world to say, we serve a king who's been good to us and now we are giving back to him. So Lord, we pray that you'll bless that offering and then you'll bless just a little bit of the remainder of the worship service that we have here this morning and then after a little break, Lord, we pray. Bless our afternoon service as well, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, we now have the opportunity of giving of our offering and offering will now be taken.
This is a worship service. It's not a classroom where you're simply given a dismissal. You are given the very blessing of God himself. So receive that privilege, that blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus be and abide with you all. Amen.